Welcome to the Summer Call Play Podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. It's Tuesday. It is Tuesday. Also, it's late on a Tuesday. <laughs> it is late on a Tuesday. Very, very late on a Tuesday. What's happening? I don't know exactly. Actually, no, I do know exactly what happened. Is that last night I was thinking, you know, Megan, I have to wake up and there's some work I have to do. I have to finish this Toronto article. I actually did a video for the Toronto article. Super awkward. You're I'll, like an influencer over there. Look at you. I'm a runfluencer. Um, yeah, I'm totally repre representing. And I was like, oh, you can sleep in a little bit. And you took that and you ran with it. I slept in all the way till 6.50. So actually, yeah. well, it's 9.30 and we're recording now, which I feel like is the equivalent of like going for a run on the weekend on Strava and feeling like you're getting out early yeah. and then coming back and it labels it as lunch run and you're like, like, oh my gosh, I'm so far behind on the day. <laughs> That's how I feel about this entire situation. Because usually we record at 6.30 and we are three hours late. Yeah, well, you got some great sleep in, right? I know, way more important. I think it's because I'm just I'm just chill as a cucumber these days. What? I'm, I'm feeling the chill energy vibes. Yeah. And it's great. Like, honestly, I love it. I think it's like awesome for sleep, awesome <laughs> for health, not so awesome for work productivity yeah. or like getting a podcast out the door productivity. You have some major Matthew McConaughey vibes going right all now. All right, all right, all right. How have we never done psychedelics? I feel like that is a necessary step in our evolution. He's reading Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Light, which is great. Green Lights, which is great. Um, you know, it's clear that that played a huge part in the type of person he became. Um, and I'm just like, Clearly, we are on that level to some extent, but we need to go all the way to it. We need to commit to our craft if we're really going to talk this big game. I don't know. Right now is a pretty good like sweet spot of being chill. I'm kind of worried about what happens if I take this to the next level. Oh, like I, I need a certain level of like angst and anxiety to uh. actually get stuff done. So <laughs> I'm worried if I go any more, like any more to the side of being more chill, it might be problematic for for just getting stuff done. That's really interesting. Anxiety is an intellectual performance enhancing. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, to some extent. Like I think I need. I mean, I don't. I don't actually like suffer from like like diagnosed anxiety. For I sure. think I just tend to be a little bit more anxious. Like yeah. I, I wake up with a natural anxiety that sometimes I don't need coffee, uh, but definitely not like diagnosed anxiety. So I think for me, there's like a sweet spot of anxiety and I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit low on that right yeah. now. Yeah, it's interesting that if you turn up any of the knobs on personality traits to a hundred, it becomes really bad. But like at some point, most things are probably good. Like anxiety to a certain extent is just being alive and being sentient and being active and open and ready. Um, but turn it up to a hundred and you know, you're staying under the couch because the world is too scary and there's too much going on. And you know, Will Smith uh slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars. What are you even supposed to do with your life? There was so much like so much discussion about yeah. that. I mean, on some level, I like I understand the discussion. I understand like all the different nuances associated with that. But on some level too, I'm like, yo, he just slapped a guy. Yeah, like, you know what I mean? Cool. Like, it's cool. Like, it's like whatever. I, I feel like these days, like, not everything has to be like this in-depth analysis on how it like all of the different tendrils in which it impacts society. And yeah. it's like at some level, we just we just witness a man slap another man. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of amazing. Two very rich men who I think both responded interestingly. You know, Chris Rock told a joke that wasn't a good, a good joke at all. It wasn't a good joke. Um, but all comedians tell bad jokes. Will Smith responded in a defensive, angry manner, which makes sense because Will Smith has been pretty open that he's like, I mean, they have an open relationship, let's say. And I, I've heard that Will Smith's like a little bit unsure of some of that. Um, and he went up, 
slapped the shit out of him. Chris Rock responded with like strength and kept going out there. Will Smith then went on to win Best Actor. I think everyone came out looking pretty good in the end. And the world got a ton of memes out of this. Yeah, you created you created a meme from it. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah. Did you ever? Did you leave that? I was. You posted that, and I was like, I don't know if you're gonna leave that up on Instagram stories. Did you leave that? Well, up? I left it because I created the meme before I saw everyone else had created memes. I didn't realize it was gonna be. A, I mean, I should have realized everything becomes a meme. So it was the it was the um, the picture of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and Chris Rock's face responding. And Chris Rock's face said, me enjoying a pleasant run. And Will Smith's slap said, uh, "My me spraining my ankle on a totally non-technical trail. Um, and ankles are totally evolutionary blunders. And I thought it was like, oh, well, that's worth a small chuckle, perhaps, from some other people that hate ankles like I do. And then I saw like that meme went everywhere and i was like okay well mine's terrible compared to everyone else's it was so good no don't give yourself that it was it was fantastic. but there were also a lot of hot takes i saw oh um, i did not see those oh yeah well you're not on twitter like i am no. twitter is interesting I, my favorite one though is someone commenting on the hot takes so this is a hot take on the hot takes which hot is take squared someone showing their search bar which said quote will smith plus quote ukraine and it's like <laughs> i'm going into the deepest hot takes of all <laughs> and it's so true and of course there were a lot of people drawing connections okay so getting back to you know a little bit of anxiety might be good a lot of anxiety might be bad i think that probably applies to just about everything we do like oh even, i agree yeah. even things like you know positivity like some positivity a lot of positivity can be really good unbridled positivity in all things is really fucking terrible and i, I mean i hope on this podcast that we bring like an understanding that um you know the world really sucks sometimes running really sucks sometimes and we're just trying to uh, make a little light along the way same goes with humor too because I, yeah. I feel like you could turn that humor dial up to 100 sure. and it could be absolutely mind-blowingly annoying <laughs> what is the movie actually this reminds me of a yeah. movie either a movie or a show and i don't know why i'm like not it's not coming to my brain immediately where they are turning dials on people's personalities and then oh. something is like super funny and they start turning the dial down constantly. Westworld? Yeah. Where is it where they're the robots and they adjust their personalities with like their iPads or is this something different? There's, I think this is like a, a kind of a different take on Westworld. It's not Westworld. It's something that we've watched recently. That's not Westworld. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sticking with Westworld, which is an amazing show that everyone should go back and watch season one because it was like so cool, but they kind of do that where they adjust their personalities mm -hmm. and then results change like wildly. And right they get really annoyed by someone and they're like, well, let's turn down their humor level to like 60%, not 75%. Or because it's HBO, let's turn up this robot sexuality to 100% oh, and man. see what happens. I'd be, it'd be a little horrifying to see what would happen if I was controlling it. After watching Ex Machina, I'd be like 150%. <laughs> let's turn it up. Let's get the erotic robots going on in there. What do you think your sexual levels are set to on your iPad? Your Megan iPad. Right now. Well, it's interesting because I don't think those relate to anxiety. Interesting. Why I, not? I think like, I think for me, like chill as cucumber actually turns up that sexual dial. Oh, interesting. Oh, it definitely does for me. Yeah. Anxiety is the opposite but, of a sexual but to state. To some extent though, I think like, I think if I got too low on that anxiety dial, I would just have like no motivation. Yeah. So I, there, I think I'm at like, there's a good balance. There's a good balance. Yes. Okay. I like that. Dials, dials are balanced. That's a good way to, to avoid the question. Perfect. Um, okay. So speaking of kind of positivity, we wanted to talk about a follow-up from last week. We get a sent a lot of really cool things from listeners. And I got this from uh, an Instagram message actually, which was talking about positive affirmation to plants. So I made a passing joke last week about like telling plants they're worthwhile or not. 
up. And apparently this is a whole body of literature where you make interventions, where you tell plants different things and see how their growth rates change. And sometimes they seem to. And I was fascinated by this because I have been, so we got plants at Home Depot, indoor plants, yes. two weeks ago, and they are already dying. Like It's <laughs> problematic. And I have been talking positive to them. I've been talking dirty to them. I've been telling them all kinds of cool things and they are not responding at all. Yeah. And I think it's because I didn't follow the watering instructions. I don't even know like they they come with watering instructions and I clearly did not follow them. I'm feeding like my succulents the same as I'm feeding my daffodils, which is clearly problematic from so, like a plant standpoint. I think the big point here is you're talking dirty to your plants. Well, every once in a while, I'm like, yo, Joe the flower, you're looking sexy. Oh, get wet. Yeah, mm, grow that stem. <laughs> oh, yeah, I want some of that seed. Okay, that went way too far. Um, don't not not a fan of that rip. Oh, but yeah, so the the plants are dying. I mean, that's not good. No, what, what's what happened, Megan? You're supposed to be good at. This. I think I'm actually overwatering them. I got okay. too, I was too overzealous with my plant. Love. Too wet. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not good. Actually, we had Drew Drew Holman gave us an orchid like a year ago, and the orchid has been the only plant in our house that is fatigue resistant. Yeah. It, like weathers everything, and Drew the orchid right now is dying so we have a a housewide problem on plants so this study is the study that this listener sent us was was relevant <laughs> well first that what you said reminded me of something that was um uh came into my mind as maybe the best moment in internet history which is ben shapiro who is not i am not a fan of whatsoever i can go on the record about that um he posted something after the song wap came out uh like last year you I know mean, it was like macaroni in a pot that's some wet ass you know and um which is great. Obviously, we love that song. It's amazing for, you know, um, like female sexual awareness. And I, I, it's great. But he tweeted with something like, I talked to my doctor wife, and this is a medical condition that they should go get checked immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, you're telling on yourself, bro, if that's what you think is an interesting statement to make. Um, so that's a little bit of an aside. The, the many uses of Twitter. But anyways, this listener sent us a study and it's called Psychological and Physiological Effect in Plant Growth and Health by Using Positive and Negative Words. But so I got excited about this study. I was reading it this morning. After spending about 15 minutes reading it, there were some great yeah. quotes in there. Zero statistical like methods. or They didn't even do any measurements on this plants. So they were just uh -huh. qualitatively describing the plants, which I believe they called Joe and Frank. <laughs> yeah. um, just two plants in the study. Yeah. Um, and I'm 99.9% .9 sure this is a fake publication. I should have realized because the abstract seemed legit. And I sent it to you. The abstract actually was well written. But when I tried to click on the PDF, my computer, my Mac warned me you should not proceed beyond this point. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe our computers are filled with viruses right now. <laughs> the viruses of science of science studies. Uh, but yeah, so I don't think, I think it's fake. Okay, but, so what but, did the study find? What was it about? Like, let's let, if it's fake, let's at least see uh, what they thought was worthwhile okay, to with, fake. With zero like statistical methods to back this up, yeah. the study found that positive affirmations to a single plant, they only compared two different plants, um, caused the plant to flourish. And they just had qualitative descriptions of flourishing so clearly like lots of problems um oh it was tom and jerry not tom oh, and jerry. Jerry. yeah that which is sense. that's which is great i yeah. feel like a plus for at least for creativity of, of naming the plants <laughs> but it made me actually think a lot because i mean if i didn't spend 10 minutes reading the study i yeah. may have been duped i may have thought this was a real and it, it perhaps is a real scientific study but i'm like pretty convinced it's not yeah. but I, it made me think about the perils of like reading science and finding science and just the nature even of like positivity bias in science in general and yeah. like how challenging that all is so there's publication bias in science where when the outcome of the research impacts whether the the paper actually gets published and that can be if you think about it it can be on the level of the researcher themselves mm -hmm. so like they might only want to publish positive findings or it could be from the from the perspective of the journal or the peer review process too yeah i mean that's super scary especially in things like exercise phys as we talk about tons of studies i'm often when i read a study i'm like 
okay, this is going to find something worked, right? And that's kind of uh, not the way it works in practice, at least what we see in coaching. Like, I don't, I think the usual correct answer is it depends. Yes, exactly. And yeah. like, you're almost always, when you look at one of these studies, finding some result. And the question is, are the the protocols that don't get results not being published? Or is it such a big ream of data that you can usually find something when you don't have 4,000 data, data points? Even if you did have 4,000 data points, you could probably find something. And like this tendency to always be finding something. In fact, your own research has has faced this a little bit, right? Where it's like, you know, you have such a big da data field that at some point you're like, well, this variable did move. Is that the one we're looking for? And then you have to be like, no, actually, you know, what is the cause here? What is the mechanism? And that's tough. I mean, publication bias is a real problem. It's a, it's really challenging too. And if you look at the, like the data on it, um, so positive studies may be more than three times likely to be published than negative studies. Wow. But the challenge is, is that like, if you think about like the null findings and studies, those often do move the field forward just in slightly different ways. Yeah. And if we're never publishing null findings or if we're only publishing like the sensational positive findings that have like a strong, a really, really strong magnitude of effect, we're perhaps missing a lot of like, key science that's contributing to the field. Or, you know, you even just think about the challenges of like these, in in many ways, we have statistical methods to control by it from, from these like things happening by chance. But yeah. that's also a big part of this too. Like, who knows if the plants, Tom and Jerry, like, is that by chance? <laughs> um, and that's like not a great like uh, example of this, because I don't think it's actually real research. But you think about all the inherent challenges that this presents. Yeah. And it adds to the complexity, which is like the inherent part of all of these physical processes that is so fascinating. So we talk a ton about exercise physiology on here. And, you know, usually in the study, we'll say they found this. And then in practice and coaching, our answer is almost always maybe. Like, um, and I think it gets, it's a specific problem in this field because exercise physiology is a lot more, I think, like law then it's like physics. So in physics, you repeat an experiment a thousand times, you're going to get the same answer a thousand times, as, as long as it's like a, a physical law. Um, whereas in law, you're presented with a fact pattern and the whole nature of law school, if you've never been there, is to be like, I can argue either direction. I can be the asshole at the dinner party that plays devil's advocate on any topic. And that's kind of how exercise physiology acts is that you put all this complexity together and it leads to the evidence points in one direction, but it's almost never like that is the right answer 100% of the time. It's like, let's put it in front of the jury and find the fuck out. Well, I think the challenge too, though, is that there's almost a, like, I think if you say, if you take the fact pattern and say it depends, as yeah. opposed to taking the fact pattern and drawing this direct conclusion, I feel like there's almost like a societal, like societal wants you to take the fact pattern and, and draw a direct conclusion because yeah. it's more sensational. Like you can... And I think that's oftentimes like what the media does, but I think yeah. it's still really important to be able to take the fact pattern and look at all the different nuances and say, it depends and be able to flesh out why. Yeah. Hopefully we do that on the podcast. I think, um, you know, we obviously have our biases and we might do that to, to like, I don't know, perhaps we do. I was going to say like to a fault. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think we're a good balance because you, I think sometimes do it to a fault because you are like basically getting your PhD in statistics related field. So you understand how much goes into it. And I just have my strongly held beliefs <laughs> that I just tweet out as memes and it all works out. Um, so that's been great. We've also had a lot of listeners sending us like everything under the sun. We get packages at the door all the time. It's really cool. It's amazing. I feel like, and we know packages that are like coming to us from the podcast because it usually says David and Megan Roach. Yeah. Whereas if you order something on, on Amazon, it's like either to David Roach or Megan Roach. And I get really excited. It's always fun to like see what kind of unique things people send us because they're always unique. Yeah. Well, so someone knows me very well. So we got Reese's Puffs cereal. So everyone knows I, I really like cereal. And Reese's Puffs is the shit. 
it is really good. So if you've never tried it, give it a try. It's amazing. There's some solid salt in there. Yeah. And I think we concluded that we really like things that are both like have a little like umami in there yeah. and a little bit of sweet. Actually, Reese's has a lot of sweet and a little bit of umami, but it's great. Yeah, it has a few hundred milligrams of salt. That's basically my conclusion from all this. It's like put salt in everything, not just salty things. That's good. But put salt in sweet things too. Um, and perhaps we're seeing why your heart blew up right now. <laughs> yeah. It's like me cooking for you every day. Actually, no. not salt related. No, not yes, salt related. Not, not, salt not behavior at related at all. But they did also send us granola with probiotics. Oh, yeah. I feel like we're getting probiotics from, our, from so many sources right now. I think, I thought you were going to say out the wazoo. And I think that might be a little literal. I was realizing the other day, I'm like, I probably have too many probiotics from like food sources in my diet because like I love athletic greens, which has some probiotics in it, but I also used to do Vega protein, which has probiotics in it. And then I was going to the bathroom a lot on runs and I'm like, that's probably a mistake. I should probably, so I've switched out the Vega for now, which might be sacrilege to some people on the uh, listening to a scent protein. We'll see how that works out. It's worked out so well so far. I've, yeah. I've had some, some good, everything's been solid. Yeah, actually, I feel like that's one area. Sometimes athletes come to me with like, they're feeling bloated or they're having gas. Yeah. And oftentimes I start with fiber because usually those people are eating just like a boatload of vegetables, yeah. which I describe as like pre-poop uh, <laughs> as, as my description of like eating way too many vegetables. But so, also- so broccoli, so let's make a new food pyramid. We need to stop right there. The bottom of the food period that has like, you know, the vegetables thing, it's just whole thing, pre-poop. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, like some vegetables, I mean, you need to like get things going. So some vegetables are good, but usually athletes that I see have stomach issues are eating like a massive quantity yeah. of fruits and vegetables. And it's just like too much fiber for the body to be able to process. Truly a metric function. It's a great point actually to make for all athletes. I had an athlete yesterday who had a workout today and um, they were traveling and they said, um, I fueled a lot today with a bunch of big salads. And I was like, bad decision. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it's like yeah. leafy greens are not going to power you through that workout. It's a great thing for health. Um, but the considerations that an athlete has that needs to shovel a lot of, you know, we, it's like a hot burning fire. You're shoveling a ton of stuff there in there all the time. You want to shovel coal in there, not kale. <laughs> um, like, I mean, kale, it's it, healthy to a certain extent, but like make sure that you're not applying the principles that are used by people that don't train hard and have such a high energy demand to yourself. Um, I also find that those athletes might find that they absorb a little bit, everything a little bit less, because if you're eating all of that roughage all the time, everything kind of goes out. So roughage is a great descriptor. Like, I feel like when I look at kale, I just see like roughage, like the way that kale is like oriented. <laughs> it just like, if I could describe kale in one word, it would be roughage. Well, ice cream would be smoothage, perhaps <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the converse of that. Okay. But people are also sending us poems, yes. which is fantastic. So, I mean, I think this was like 10 episodes ago. I talked about the idea that I really wanted to like poetry more, yeah. but I haven't, I, it was like a part of me, like I had this deep yearning to learn more about poetry, but I just felt like ill-equipped to do so. I was yeah. like, I don't know. I feel like my brain doesn't conceptualize it very well and people have sent me the best poems like i am reading like at least a poem a day and i feel like my brain is like thriving and growing on poetry <laughs> well you know what's really interesting people are sending you poetry but i'm not getting it like it's not getting sent directly to me um i wonder what that means you're just about... getting the joe rogan hate mail and i'm getting it's poetry. True. <laughs> okay actually behind the curtain so we we got I, I mentioned last week that we got a piece of joe rogan hate mail um, and you like gave joe so, rogan like you were like well on the podcast i was just like I don't hate anyone that I don't know that doesn't like, he's not a politician. Like he doesn't, he's not like passing laws. Okay. Hate is a strong term, but you should object to Joe Rogan's principles. Well, I do. I, I, I object to some of the yes. things he says. A lot of the things But I don't know everything about him. And okay, we're going through, we're relitigating. We're, we're rehashing this. This is but, what happened last week. Of course. So to, for, for those scoring at home, I've gotten hate mail to the podcast because I said Joe Rogan 
when he talked to Jordan Peterson on climate change, it was the worst. It was like charlatans talking. Um, and I got hate mail about that. And now I've gotten hate mail saying I'm not, I don't hate Joe Rogan enough. I said, oh no, it wasn't hate mail actually. It was, it was feedback saying that the person might be done listening to the podcast due to that. So it was a little different. Wait, was that a podcast ender? Yeah, perhaps. That's, well, that's we'll, see. we'll see. We'll see. Maybe they're listening now. Um, and so I totally respect that. You're allowed to make those decisions. But the point being, like, if you try to practice, and, and this is how I responded, it's like, I'm trying to practice, um, you know, principles of love that we preach on here, which is like, you don't just give love out to people that earn it. You try to give love to everyone. And then when someone like objectively is intentionally harming others, that has to change. Right. And like, I don't know Joe enough. I mean, I know a lot of people that do respect him. And I'm like, well, they can't all be wrong. I'm not going to just totally be like, I know the world because I've never listened to everyone as well. So trying and trying to practice love, uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, try, and trying to be in the middle with love. People just don't like it. Maybe we just, we're getting back to dials here. Maybe turn that dial of love down a okay. little bit. How does that sound? Or maybe flip it to compassion. I feel like if compassion. compassion sounds like a better term for this than love, because I feel like compassion can recognize the, the interest, the in, in wow. The intricacies. Good and, job getting the word oh, out. Oh, that was so problematic. High five. The, in, the intricacies. And I went for it again. The intricacies and problems. Three times. Of, of a human. And I feel like compassion allows for that. I like that a lot. I don't know, though. I, I think that love is such a powerful force. And love not being like a romantic love, but love being the ability to try to find the good in all, in everyone, and in their unique backgrounds and what brings them to the point they do. It's like, yes, if someone has my specific context, they should find what I've heard Joe Rogan say in clips be extremely objectionable and evil to some extent, some of the things, particularly with climate change. But like, if you don't have my context and I'm assuming he doesn't, for example, it's like, well, maybe you do come to different conclusions and maybe I'm channeling things that are like uncompassionate, unloving by counting anyone out. So essentially what I'm saying is, I don't know. I think sometimes um, there people think that like social media personalities and comedians and stuff cause hate that they're not really it's like talk to your fucking politicians think about politics think about schools that's what matters you know joe rogan doing a podcast is not radicalizing anyone um but maybe i'm totally wrong on that and we're gonna get more hate mail to me. i guess the one thing i have and i don't know like the the nature of joe rogan's background is yeah. i feel like joe rogan has the resources and the capabilities and the like worldly vision to be able to understand the complexities of these things whereas like when i have compassion for people that might not think the same way that i do yeah. and i'm not saying that the way i think is correct it's the way you think is correct <laughs> it is. but you off i think oftentimes i look at like different backgrounds but i think joe rogan has the background background to understand and that's why i think my dial of love is turned down to like three percent negative 75 percent three percent is generous but we'll, we'll leave a little love there but anyways <laughs> so listeners have been i've had like 15 listeners send me mary oliver poems wow and i was like i've never heard of mary oliver before like she must be amazing yeah and she is i mean i've been like trying to absorb as much of her work as possible because every poem i read by her she ties a lot of her poems back to like nature and like the just the overall like environment and i think i tie a lot of emotions to that and i they i like i feel like when i read her poems i'm like she gets me I they've like spoken her. to you they have spoken to me um she's been writing so she she unfortunately passed in 2019 at the age of 18, 83 but she's been writing poems she wrote poems from 14 to 83 which wow. is wild that's like a really commitment prolific, to the right? game yeah but she has an amazing poem and i want to read this because it's on worries and it's also short enough where i can read it and i won't butcher it as long as it doesn't have the word inter Wow. <laughs> intricacies in it. I talk too fast to say the word intricacies. Yeah, too many syllables. It's like one syllable. That's all that's all I can take. A lot going on that word. Okay, here's the poem. And this really spoke to me for some reason. And I feel like this will to other podcast listeners. I worried a lot. 
Will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how shall I correct it? Was I right? Was I wrong? Will I be forgiven? Can I do better? Will I ever be able to sing? Even the sparrows can do it, and I am, well, hopeless. Is my eyesight fading, or am I just imagining it? Am I going to get rheumatism, lockjaw, dementia? Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing, and gave it up, and took my old body, and went out into the morning, and sang. Uh-huh. And isn't that beautiful? See, look, you even gave, that was like a very genuine chuckle, which yeah. you're usually like not a huge fan of poetry. And I feel like that was, that's a pretty solid response. That's great. I think it's because I can understand it. I think most poetry is just so far beyond the way my brain works. But I think poetry is shifting. Like, I think there's, I, uh, I think we that's don't, like, you don't I think know that's, enough about it. Oh, I don't, but I think that's how I classically thought about poetry. And I think there's a lot more poetry now that like feels more, like, I feel like poetry is like merging more in the ways of like some poetry merging more in the ways of like a rap form and yeah. that was beautiful yeah i mean it's a, it's so beautiful like i think um you know going out and singing is so cool and to think about how worries like are constantly held and hold us back and we hold them forever um and where i'm th- thinking about that specifically and i've actually been talking to an athlete about this is in financial stuff uh, um yeah so you know i think that especially in the u.s maybe in other countries other listeners can let me know um finances are tied up in really complicated things because it's not just like being able to live your life day to day. It's also like in a capitalistic society often held up as a metric of worth. I was going to say identity and status. That was like the first thing that my brain thought of. Like personal worth, Mm -hmm. like having enough in a bank. And it's like, if you're holding that, like, remember, it actually has nothing to do with that. Like you do need to get by in life. Like you have to play the game to a certain extent because that's the game we live in. But, um, you know, I found myself doing that sometimes too, where, you know, I've, I've gone periods, especially when I was a lawyer, where I had zero dollars. Where I was giving you money to, I was giving you like money to buy gas or avocados or yeah. peanut butter. Yeah. And I felt ashamed of that. Even knowing that I, I was doing something that I cared about. Well, and- it's funny that you feel ashamed about that because you were taking out student loans to go to Duke, which is a top law school, and feeling ashamed about your worth because you were, you know, you were in debt. And it's like yeah. that's in my mind ridiculous. But I imagine like from your perspective, it feels different. Yeah. Debt is not character. Financial status, bank accounts are not character. And so, you know, if you're holding that, like when I think about this this quote, like we're all holding on to these things, like I mean, probably a lot of people listening to this check their bank account all the time, even when it doesn't have I any do too. Yeah. concrete changes on how they live their life or what they're doing. It's almost like a scratching an itch of worry to a certain extent. It's like, that's probably not healthy. It's probably not something, it's, we're probably internalizing things that really, really do damage us. And so what I've kind of tried to decide to do recently, we'll see if I can live by it, is to not care. Like to, to understand that I'm privileged to say that. Um, that like it's a huge issue and we need to focus on giving everyone that privilege to care less because, you know, I'm fortunate to get, have gotten to know people through coaching that are millionaires many, many times over and they stress just as much as they did when they had no money. And that's a big problem when you think about how that might influence a person, person's life. I mean, and you think about Mary Oliver, let's say some, let's say a person at 82 that's still checking the stock ticker every day with stress, not with love or joy or like finding the game in it, but with like, what's going to happen? And it's like, well, never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch. So what's that for? That's true. And I feel like the stock ticker too is also just like, 
analogy for so many other things in life because it's like that's one thing that can be measured I think for me actually my worries compound a lot more for things that can't be measured Mm. because they almost like I actually find like more of a sense of certainty in things that are measured because I know I know what the outcome is but it's more things that are like going on beneath the surface or like even things are happening in life that I can't measure because I'm like well am I even analyzing this correctly like am I even measuring this so So what do you mean what's like what's an example of something you can't measure like like productivity so like how am I and I try to measure that in ways yeah. that I know are not valid, but it's like, is my productivity enough for the day? Am I even measuring this correctly? Or even like health, you know, I'm like yeah. thinking about my heart, which has like some objective measures, but a lot of it also too is subjective in terms of like the chest pain in which I'm yeah. feeling. And it's like, you know, constantly like worrying and evaluating progress on that, on these things that I'm just like making up as metrics. I love that. Yeah. It's very similar to athletics too, you know, because like weekly miles or training uh, is the ultimate proxy for this. We have a lot of athletes coming up in racing. Let's say the Gorge 100K is coming up this weekend. I've had a few athletes that do that be like, have I trained enough, but my miles are here. This other person's are here. It's essentially the brain trying to quantify something in this worry system, which is like the same same idea of like not going back and looking at your bank account. You probably shouldn't go back and analyze your Strava relative to other people. No, Because those are metrics that are trying to, are smoothing out a much more complicated rough thing this is like our smoothed smoothage versus roughage situation and um accepting that complexity and trying to just find peace in it and going outside and singing is where it's at i think and that's that is my biggest challenge is like accepting the complexity because it's like my brain wants to boil everything down to like a stat or a piece of data or like some metric that i can quantify and analyze and a lot of life is not doing that oh yeah and you know back to the finances you know you mentioned the stock market that's why i don't i can't do that because it is the ultimate being aware. Oh, of you that. have you invested in BJ's? The BJ's restaurants? Yes. Yeah, it has a great name. Yeah. Um, but no, I, the, the problem. So is- you have okay. So my I am like team index funds. Yeah. You every once in a while like to invest in like random stocks, and that gives me anxiety. Yeah. Well, the point is, it did to me too, which is why I got out of BJ's when it was ten dollars, and now it went up to like seventy. So <laughs> another example of why I should not play this game. And perhaps if you're listening, you should hop off that. You know financial worth game as well, at least as it comes to how it relates to your character. Um, okay. Uh, do you want to move on to like- Let's do this. Let's actually, let's move on to whoop stuff because this yes. is like really interesting and it's also stuff we can quantify. So we're, we're <laughs> almost like we're coming like full circle in a weird twisted way. Especially because you're feeling good and your numbers are good, which totally contradicts what we just said, but these are telling us a story we like. So it's kind of like looking at the stock market when it's gone up 8,000 points in the last week. And I'm like, I will buy into this narrative. I like this. It's not causing worry right now. It's great. Yeah. My HRV for four and a half months with this hard stuff tanked like yes. 40s 50s i'm usually 90s 100s 110s and it absolutely tanked and now it's coming back and i think i'm healing and it's so exciting okay so this mm-hmm. is some of the most hopeful and fun data i've seen i, I mean, we've it. seen in four months or so yeah it's so fun i mean it's i think to me i also like, am starting to feel a lot better in terms yeah. of like my heart and my myocarditis i think healing yeah. um though i don't have imaging confirmation of that yet but i feel like the whoop stuff is really helpful because it's like it's coming in with this confirmation of me feeling good and layers in on top this evidence and i'm excited by it but i'm also most excited because for a long time well basically at the start of, at the start of using whoop my baseline HRV was always higher than yours. Yes. And then during myocarditis recovery, it tanked and I was always lower than you. And now I'm coming back and I'm higher than you again <laughs> on Sundays. And it's amazing. Yeah. You've beaten me the last three days, which at, my HRV is actually up. So, you know, I love that that's what you're, you're searching for. It's not, oh, my heart's healing. It's in a better place. It's like, 
being you, sucker. <laughs> we do in it. I feel like we should have a family competition with HRV to see who has the highest HRV on average each week. And I think the, the loser has to buy ice cream. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Some of but that smoothage. The problem is, though, I actually, as I'm saying this, the problem is that you buy our groceries already. That's kind yeah. of like the relationship deal that we have. So I should really think of something better. Like, you're the sugar daddy already. The sugar <laughs> hubby. So let's, I need to think of something better. Yeah, we'll think of it. Maybe we can turn that sex meter up. <laughs> No, don't do that. No more. Um, so yeah, no, it's incredible um, to reflect on this. So for background, your HRV would often get over 100 um, back before your heart thing. It absolutely went to the floor after. I mean, it was 40 to 50 most days um, throughout this. There was a brief period where it went up when you were on prednisone at first. Really high dose prednisone, yeah. Um, but then it just tanked again. And so this has been four months. And that's why when even when we got hope, I was kind of holding out because I'm like, well, why aren't your numbers back at baseline? Why are your, why is your HRV in the forties when it's usually in the nineties? Yeah. 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 Well, that much because like the exact raw number doesn't matter, but relative to baseline is like, has your physiology changed? Is that heart damage? Like I wasn't sure. And over the last few days, we've seen that number start to peak up back into its normal levels. So this might be the most hopeful, exciting place we've been. I mean, is it matched in how you feel and how you're feeling? It is. It's definitely matched in it. But I think I also have hope without, I'm also understanding that I could get like tricked. I could get like absolutely like face smacked coming up yeah. in a couple of days. So like given my trajectory, sometimes I've had periods where I do feel pretty good and then it like relapses or like my, I have heart pain again. So I'm hopeful, but I'm also not, I don't have expectations. Well, I'm really hopeful though that the medications you're on, particularly the yes. autoimmune medications are really starting to I do work. think they're working. Yes, yeah. which is it's exciting. Just, your, your body's no longer attacking itself. <sighs> it's such, I mean, what a gift. You know, it's like, you know, it's that old thing, like stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself, like with your, your older sibling or whatever. That's kind of what your body was doing with autoimmune. Except it was bringing like gladiator swords. Yeah. It was going full battle against all my organs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so fortunately Megan's heart's feeling good. I'm feeling good too. We're also doing, um, hopefully some science articles with loop on, uh, some, some cool ways that this stuff is used in some, uh, interesting science topics. We'll see though. I like how you said, hopefully, yeah. because uh, we sent them articles and yeah. I, I think it's always interesting when you collaborate with someone for the first time, we're like, well, they accept our humor. Yes. Well, they accept our writing. So we will see, but we did send them science articles yeah. that they so, wanted. Yes. Sending something into an editor is like, uh, a terrible, that's where love and compassion does not apply to me because I'm like, this is exactly the way this article should be written and it should not be changed. <laughs> Still have not, uh, have not fully gotten by that. But the, the first thing that we looked at was about rest um, and how this is important. And so Whoop went in and found this in amazing data for us, which I really loved. They looked at a massive data set. Um, we're not allowed to tell you the exact number of that because um, it starts to look at like user base um, totals, but just rest assured, this is such a big number that these findings are really significant. Um, and then uh, what they did is they looked at that massive data set for red days. So every time a user had a low recovery day and then how they followed that up, what their activities levels were the next day and how their um, recovery responded. And if we break down too for people who are not Whoop users, mm -hmm. what is actually the the red day? Um, so it's an algorithm that Whoop uses to predict recovery. And they don't exactly, it's proprietary information, how they yeah. actually do that recovery, but people have reverse engineered it, which is super cool. And <laughs> it's theorized that a large component of that is HRV. Yeah, so it's mostly HRV. How, how is heart rate variability impacting recovery? And red days are low recovery days. Yes. So um, they took this massive data set and looked at what happened the next day. Um, and here's the really cool part. Members who had restorative strain, which is our proxy for rest. So this is essentially, uh, they're not doing much um, significant aerobic training that day. 
um, were 2.3 times less likely to have another red day than members who uh, overreached. So overreaching was just like a normal amount of stress, so like going for a run on a red day, essentially, like a, hard, like a moderate run. Um, and that's a really cool finding. I mean, 2.3 times less likely of continuing this negative cycle with your nervous system um, is a really big change and something we should pay attention to. Um, and then on on the flip side, so overreaching on a red day led to a 46% chance of another red day. And then from there, so like once those those members had two different red days, they had about one third chance of backing that up with a third um, red day after that. So if you think about this, essentially not taking restorative, a restorative or recovery day when you have that red day really increases your chances for stacking red days thereafter. And that leads to chances that the body is not adapting and responding to yeah. training. And that's the big point here that we try to make in the, the article. So the article really centers itself on the nervous system and endocrine system rather than this whoop data because we want to talk about the mechanisms first like always ground things in mechanisms right and so um, there's 2014 review and current sports medicine reports and it has one of my favorite quotes on the nervous system and how it relates to athletics and said the insidious onset of overtraining syndrome slowly saps the efficacy of recovery times so the athlete is no longer able to reach previously attainable goals um, and the cool word there, the word that I think really matters is insidious. What a good word. I love the word insidious. And I think this applies to, so this is obviously talking about the context of overtraining syndrome, which is a, a syndrome, which actually it's hard to diagnose, but is um, kind of like a fulminant example of not recovering over yeah. and over and over again. But I think insidious also applies to what happens when the body just slips into periods of overreaching or even just yeah. perhaps being a little bit overstressed, yes. not even overreaching, is that it happens slowly. Like it's really hard to even because it's happening slowly, like the body often just adjusts to it or adapts to it as yeah. what you feel like is the new normal. And I think that's why actually diving into and looking at, instead of just looking at like the overall recovery score, like looking at the numbers and understanding like what your baselines are of HRV, or if, you know, even if you're not using numbers, like what are your baselines and like energy levels? Yeah. Um, what are your baselines and hunger status? Like all of these different things, mood even are important things to pay attention to in the context of like overstressing, overreaching and overtraining. Well, it's fascinating in the context of your whoop data that we just mentioned, because it, it went on so long with your heart that it adjusted. So my, that, whoop, my whoop algorithm adjusted over yeah, time. Yeah. Like you're on the shit scale um, for Megan, for you, your your levels. And so now it thinks you're the best person on earth, even though this would be lower than before. So we're keeping context of before to understand that, okay, your HRV still has a ways to go. Um, it's getting there, but not quite. Um, the other really relevant thing here is the endocrine system. So we talk about uh, hormones all the time. I mean, we talk about amenorrhea all the time, particularly for female athletes, which I think makes it a little more obvious, right? Like you're getting that uh, that feedback. But for male athletes, um, there are some wild studies. Uh, we've mentioned these briefly before, but I always want to bring them back up for people that are listening that think that you know, just because we don't have the period feedback, men aren't still going through this. Um, one study found that testosterone in male athletes um, was a 10% reduction after one year of training and a 30% reduction after five years that's of training. wild. It's so scary. I mean, that's just, um, you're going to feel worse in everything in life at that point. And that, that's not good. That effect size is so high. Also, that was in the journal Hormones. Yeah. And I feel like the journal Hormones needs an exclamation point, like hormones. <laughs> that's how I would describe the journal. I don't know. It's something about that sounds, sounds more exciting. And I think for me, it's really helpful to think about like, okay, mm -hmm. what's the conclusion here? So we have all of this data that's piling up in what do we actually draw the conclusion from? And we wrote this summary piece um, in the Whoop article that may or may not be coming out. Yeah. I'll read this actually, because I think it's a really helpful conclusion. Every training day risks turning down the knob on sex hormones, turning up the knob on cortisol, and causing minor offsets in energy availability. 
Rest days are endocrine system insurance, allowing for glycogen recovery and stabilization of cortisol levels. So I think the the real crux of the story here is that rest and recovery days are like the key days in training. Yes. And they are also decidedly sometimes the most like unsexy days in training, yeah. but that's where the body adapts and thrives and grows. And it's neat to see that backed up um, in the WHOOP data that we're seeing and um, just across even like anecdotal experiences in athletes and then also in, in journal articles too. Yeah. And I think maybe if there's anything that I hope we have pushed this field forward with in, you know, with coaching, especially for pro athletes, is that just because you don't need to take a rest day physically doesn't mean you shouldn't take a rest day for the way you adapt over time. Um, you know, I think that there's this tendency to say, okay, seven days a week, um, elite athletes, particularly ones that are injury um, resistant or non-elite athletes that are inju injury resistant can almost always do an hour easy on that Monday. And our question is why? Because even if you're not able to measure exactly how the sex hormones are getting perturbed or cortisol is going up slightly or those little offsets in energy availability, those are, you know, you're chunking away at the wall you're creating. And so, yes, that might lead to a weekly mileage total that is eight to 10 miles less. And so that athlete might not be hitting 100 miles per week, but it doesn't matter because the, the actions that actually lead to adaptation are acting on much longer timescales and have much more to do with the endocrine system and the nervous system than they do with weekly mileage totals for sure. Like the Strava graph is not relevant at all. Um, but what is relevant is making sure that these underlying like variables, some of which we can measure, some of which we can't, um, are moving in the right direction. And I think this rest and recovery concept is being highlighted more and more across different fields too. Like yeah. I think oftentimes like rest and recovery in exercise is also just a proxy for the need for rest and recovery in life. Yeah. And I think about that a lot in the context of burnout. Like yeah. I think more and more we're seeing all these examples of athletes, of people, of just general people out there like in, having career burnout or athletic burnout or all different types and forms of burnout. And I think we're seeing this like rise to the surface much more. Yeah. So before getting into a story on that, uh, join.whoop.com slash swap offer code swap SWAP at checkout. We'll get you a ton off on that. Um, we're not saying you need to use whoop again. Like we're trying to be as transparent as possible. This for us is used as a metric to track our bodies over time, particularly as it relates to HRV um, in a standardized way. We're also the company's super cool. And, and the data are fun. It's really fun to look up in the, to yeah. wake up in the morning and be like, what's your HRV <laughs> and make it a competition. Yeah. As all things in life are. You do send me screenshots and just say, boom. From bed. It's like, I'm, I'm like yeah. laying there in bed, like, oh, maybe I should get up now. And I send you the screenshot. And yeah. Like, look at this. Boom. Actually, one, one other thing I wanted to mention briefly is that a lot of people, I would say if you have sleep anxiety, caution with it Yes, mm -hmm. um, and, and try to reframe it. So the way I've found that works for me, having a little bit of like, I'm not the best sleeper is um, using it as incentive to stay in bed longer, not necessarily pressure to be asleep, but being like, okay, I want to make sure that my time in bed is nine hours, even if my sleep number is seven hours, which is common for me as a, uh, a shit sleeper. Funny thing is before I had whoop, I convinced myself I was the best sleeper ever, but I was probably undershooting massively as a result. So I've increased my time in bed to nine hours. And I think it's made a really big difference in how I feel. Or and so thank you. That's like a a mechanism by which this can work. It can also just be the incentive to lay there and close your eyes because sometimes it might think you're sleeping when you're not, yes. which is amazing. And it surely won't think you're sleeping when you're not, when you're texting on your phone or That's on Instagram. True. So it's a great metric. It's a great just reason to, to lay there with your eyes closed, being nice and peaceful and chill as a cucumber, yeah. which I've embraced recently. I like that. Yeah. Just that chill ass cucumber with there with your eyes closed. Yeah. That's, um, been a huge thing for me is like not thinking that if I don't fall asleep for an hour, it's a failure. Mm -hmm. Like that is a success. Just sit there relaxing 
and try to find a positive mental place, then that can be really productive too. And as a result, often I'll get to sleep. And when I don't, who cares? So awesome. You want to move on to burnout? Let's do it. Okay. So uh, you are really fascinated by this story. This is on Ash Barty, who you might have heard of. Um, she is a tennis player at the peak of her powers, I believe in her mid-20s, who just retired from the game while at number one in the world. And not only was she number one, she had the she was at number one for a long time. So she had the fourth longest um, number one stint in WTA history wow. and retired while at number one. She made $17.5 million in prize money. And that's yeah. only prize money. Like I can't imagine what she was making in endorsements. Yes. Um, and tennis was like a way of life for her. And to some extent that might also shape this story and why tennis became so problematic for her. But she played, I mean, by age nine, she was playing with 15 year old boys. Wow. By age 15, she was playing against adults and competing on the adult circuit. So she was like a tennis product from a young age and that it was just such a foundation in her life but also like her only life too based on what yeah. she describes and it became problematic well it's really hard to think about how much commitment anything takes at that level it gets so much you have to give all of yourself to something um or at least that's the narrative behind it and how sustainable is that for someone for some brains like i think at least for mine i've learned it's not like i've already burnt i burned out on law relatively early and like is because I was working 12 hour days and when I didn't have to be, it was just so unnecessary. And I, I thought I was doing what it took to be the best at something. And in fact, it's like, well, it's clearly not what it takes to be the best if I'm no longer doing it. And the, I mean, she faced that to the max. I mean, not to say her career is a failure. I think it's the ultimate success, but God, that must be so hard to think about the strain she was under to want to retire at this age. It must've been very difficult for the last you know number of years. Well, I think the thing is, is like, I don't think I can even conceptualize how, like what she was going through and the yeah. extent to which her life was altered by tennis. So there was one year that reports that she was home when she was a, a teenager, she was home 27 days in one year. Oh my gosh. Um, and think about that, like as a teenager in your formidable years. And I don't think I can even conceptualize just how much work and dedication yeah. it takes at this top level. And I don't think a lot of people can conceptualize that either because, you know, if she receives criticism for walking away from sport, it's like, yeah, live like a week in her shoes, doing the travel, doing the competition preparation, doing the training yeah. and like report back to us because that has to be so hard. Yeah. And I, it's such an important thing for everyone to consider because as we th talk about athletics a lot, it's like investing yourself in this stuff needs to have a long-term trajectory or it, you become, you know, just eat yourself alive. Um, getting out the door becomes like the worst. Um, actually reminds me a little bit of, um, I saw it again on Twitter, <laughs> um, something from like a well-known um, person in this field that was like, this shit isn't fun and it shouldn't be. It was like that arguing that type of thing of like, get hard, like go for it. And it's like, I don't think that's the way to look at it at all. Because if it isn't fun, like if it's not something that you just enjoy doing for its own sake, you're going to burn out at some point, whether it's the type of Ash Barty burnout where you reach the top or it's the type of burnout where you're depressed and, you know, go through really, really negative mental places that like totally um, contradict the point of sports in the first place. Well, I would argue. So I think you need at least like 5% fun to sustain anything in yeah. life. Yeah. But I think what people define as fun has really broad definition. So when you're referring to the guy, and I think I know exactly who this is, that was <laughs> like, get hard. It's like not fun is the only way to like go, go forward. I think for him, that is actually fun. Yeah. That's and true. so I think there, there it, it's like his definition of fun is altered and he's perceiving that as fun. It's like what has driving him. But I think there's like that fundamental, like 5% of fun that you need to drive anything in life. Yeah. It doesn't need to be airplane arms to be enjoyable for other types of people. Maybe, maybe it does for me. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, 
that it, the beautiful tapestry of what makes makes a human human. But Ash Barty, I mean, she had actually so she when she in, I think it was in 2015 when she was when she was younger, she actually retired for a period of time, like 18 months. She went and played cricket. Wow. She was like, I just need a break from the sport. I want to go play cricket. Um, and then wound up coming back to tennis um, um, in 2016, totally unranked and ranked. Her, she worked her way. She, you know, from like the 300s all the way back up to number one after that period of time. And so she's had a history of doing this before in I just think, well, one, so much courage yeah. to make that decision. And I think it really highlights the idea that like talking openly about mental health and sport is so needed and like really like inspired by her for making that decision, not an easy decision to make. But also I think it highlights the idea that like there's well a lot of different points highlights, yeah. but I think really the idea that like we need identities, the athletes need identities outside of being an athlete and not to give like to save some room for cream in yeah. being an athlete. Like, you know what I mean? Like giving yourself a hundred percent to sport is just not sustainable in the long term. Yeah, and not just sport. I say don't give all of yourself to anything. Always save some of yourself. Um, I think it's one problem that people face with social media is they feel like they have to live this transparent style. And it's like, no, actually, that's not healthy either. Um, that as soon as you do that, you're going to go down negative paths. So this is a quote from Ash um, that I really loved. I know how much work it takes to bring out the best of yourself. I said it to my team multiple times. I just don't have that in me anymore. Physically, I have nothing more to give. I've absolutely given everything I have to this beautiful sport of tennis. And I'm really happy with that. So it seems like she's built a, you know, a positive, uh, like outlook on all of this, which is great. Uh, but Gosh, the problem is, yeah, Ash Barty, number one in tennis, this kind of ends up as a happy-ish story. Um, but what happens when it doesn't, right? And we see behind the scenes in coaching so often it doesn't. And the like people push themselves because they're motivated by extrinsic factors or intrinsic factors that are negative, where they're trying to prove something rather than just trying to go out and like explore life or joy or whatever their intrinsic factors are that are more positive. And it goes down like really, really hard, difficult paths that most people might never even see or be aware of. And I think this conversation reminds me a lot of like conversations recently on failure. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this necessarily applies directly. I don't know Ashwater's story enough to know how she deals with failure, how she perceives a failure. But in my opinion, tennis is this like very binary game because yeah. like you win or you lose. And a lot of sports are like that. Fortunately, running is not quite like yeah. that in the same way. Like there's a lot of different like intricacies involved in running. Around <laughs> um, but I think in tennis, it's like, you know, everything relates to having like a win or a loss and yeah. you become in many ways like that framework. And I think that's a, a real challenge. It actually, and trigger warning here, about to talk about something that happened at Stanford that involves um, someone dying by suicide. So skip ahead a minute. Um, but I think this is actually a really important part of this conversation because recently at Stanford, there's been a large number of, of suicides on campus, which yeah. is tragic and sad. So sad. And I know Stanford... Stanford's an incredible place, like, and they're working to address this. But I think in many ways, it is like a pressure cooker yeah. on campus. And recently, the death of Stanford goalkeeper, Katie Meyer. Katie was like in incredible life force. Yeah. I don't know if anyone watched. I think it was the 2019 championships when Stanford women's soccer won. Katie was the, the goalkeeper in during penalty kicks and larger than life yeah. force. Like you watch her on camera and you're like, this woman is going to move mountains. Like she's going to change worlds. That video gave me chills. Like I had never seen it. And it's just like, oh my God, that's what sports is about. And what I love about Katie too, and I don't, I didn't know her personally, but just from watching videos and seeing like her aura is that she wasn't afraid to be competitive. Yeah. Like she was hyper competitive and she was like, no, this is like, 
it's okay to be a woman and to be hyper competitive and to have that swag. And I think she was really redefining that and like presenting that as a role for females in sport. And yeah. I thought that was cool. It's so beautiful. And so um, I, I don't know too much of this story, but I know you followed it closely. You, I mean, as a member of the Stanford community, you got an email about it and then you just went down the rabbit hole and learn, learn more. So what, like, what do you know happened there? So from my understanding, this was totally unexpected. Like her parents yeah. had chatted with her before and it was really that she received an email from Stanford about disciplinary, academic disciplinary action. It was unclear whether it was related to her or a teammate or like what her exact involvement was in it. But her parents brought up the idea that she just like always strove for perfection yeah. and really took this as like this, I don't know, like modicum of failure and yeah. how tough that is. And I think so many times we're hearing about these young athletes that have struggles and it's just the the like ability, the inability to, to remember that like everyone do like failure is like a fundamental part of life. It's where we grow. It's how we develop. And I just wish like there was a way that we could chat about that more openly or like allow people to feel that more deeply yeah. when times get tough. And also she is like the pressure people are under in ways that may never be understood by those around them. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. my guess is that her, the full extent of her struggles based on what you're saying about her parents, they might not have even known. No, you know? And I've seen that. athletes that go through this too, is that sometimes they don't describe this to anyone right like it might maybe a running coach hears it because that's almost an easier place because there's no like there's no uh consequences right like you're not going to have someone step in and make changes um because that voice that is intrusive like doesn't perhaps always want what's best for you and so you know perhaps she never even told her parents and it shows that like striving for perfection is such a difficult and hard thing that I think we're all tempted to do in everything. I was gonna say, I think it's a very human thing is yeah. the challenge. And how do you like untangle that from being human with like giving yourself love? Yeah. And I think that's, but I think that's the part of, I mean, I think that's how you do it is you understand like this is a human thing and yeah. perhaps I'm gonna strive for this, but I also need to give myself grace oh, too. I think strive for imperfection. Do it in a really focused, concrete way. Like when we talked about DNFs the other week, as soon as I DNF'd, I was like, eh. That'll be a cool story. That'll hopefully help people understand the full range of what make goes into David. Um, and like, it's so much easier when that can be the narrative rather than being like, I have to win, I have to win national championships or anything like that. Um, also just a general thing on mental health more generally is that like athletics should fit into that broader story. And so, you know, if you're out there and you're struggling, like, again, you are loved. Every time we hear about this, this type of thing, it's like, God, existence is not easy. And like, if you're struggling, please, please, please tell people, tell your loved ones, tell us, tell your parents, tell your partner, tell everyone, because um, these struggles that seem so tragic and shocking when they're emailed, um, there's so many situations where people might feel a little bit like Katie on the inside, and they're just holding it in, thinking it makes them weird or different or even, quote, crazy. And it's like, no, actually, it just makes you human. And perhaps those things are imperfections, but that's what we should be striving for, is striving for that imperfection and every other interesting one that can go into making us us. And we talk a lot on here about a celebration mindset. And I think yeah. it's about celebrating those imperfections and like celebrating the open communication, celebrating being open and honest, even if it's like the hard stuff to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so more generally, I think it just talks about, um, you know, when we're thinking about rest is like being willing to take steps back that you don't always have to be driving forward in that quest. Because if you're constantly driving forward, it's really hard to be sustainable. And that's uh, something I struggle with that so much. Yeah. I'm like, I want my foot on the gas pedal in life yeah. all the time. I want to be like crossing off my to-do list. I want to be doing all these things. And I, I've definitely recognized that if I don't take a step back and just chill, yeah. like it's going to be problematic. Well, if the foot is on the gas pedal, either the engine is going to overheat 
or you're going to go off a cliff. Or you're going to run out of gas. Yes. None, none of those are very good. Um, so uh, what should you do on a rest day is perhaps the next question. This is uh, just a compilation of fun things we wanted to talk about. Um, the first is relaxation activities. You've really figured this out. So you're ultimate pedal to the metal woman. Um, and often, especially with the heart stuff where you haven't been able to exercise that much, you've been coming up for air at the end of the day and just like incoherent. It's, it was rough for a while. Incoherent is a great way to describe it. I was just replacing, I mean, all my like pent up energy surrounding exercise into work. So I was working these really long stints. Yeah. And I recognized a few weeks in, I was like, Megan, this is not sustainable. Like this is going to be challenging for your mental health. Like at some point you're going to burn out. And so I started placing some relaxation activities into my day and it's been game changing. Okay. Okay. So should we, what are those? Do you want to start with various uh, things? TV. TV I, yes. I never used to watch TV as a kid. And and I get to the end of the day now and I'm like too tired to read a book because I'm like, oh gosh, I have to yeah. like read words. I've been reading words on a computer all day. Like, and watching TV has been the perfect decompression. The other day I came down and you were watching TV at 4.30 PM, which is a unheard of thing from our relationship. It made me so happy. This is a very me behavior, not very you behavior. And you were watching a show about vacation homes on Netflix. I think it had a longer name, but I don't think it even matters because yeah. vacation homes was the entire premise of the show. I think I actually asked you yesterday. I was like, Megan, what are you learning from this show? And I said, absolutely nothing. And that's the entire point of it. <laughs> it was so great. So they basically just go around and find three vacation homes and there's like a different theme to each show. And it's, I mean, I really don't learn anything from it, but something yeah. about it is peaceful and fun to watch. So, and it transports me. I'm like going to Bali on the beach. Yeah. They had one in Telluride in Colorado and I was, I was interested. So there's a guy and two girls and I was like, do they, they bang at the end of this? And I you're think, like, no, they don't actually. But there's a lot of images of them like climbing into bed, all three of them. And so yeah. I have, I have some theories. It's, oh, it's implied. I feel like there's some like tension. There's some, some dot, some, uh, uh, Knob turning? Yes, yes, for sure. Knobs are turned in the right direction. Um, the other show that's very similar is Is It Cake on Netflix, where the entire premise of Is It Cake is they take things that either are cake or are not cake, but look the same. So like two bowling balls, one is cake and one is not cake. And then ask people which one is cake. And it is a fantastic, joyous ride to have on in the background. I imagine it would be great on psychedelics. I had some deep thoughts about this though. So Mikey Day is the host. Mikey yes. Day is on SNL. And it gave me the realization I could watch anything that Mikey Day does. Yeah. So this could be like, is it a coyote or a dog? And if it was hosted by Mikey Day, I would be equally satisfied. Actually, perhaps <laughs> more satisfied under that structure. It could be anything. Is it an avocado? Just yeah. some random, is it a water bottle? And Mikey Day, I think if you bring like the enthusiasm and the comedy that he brings to anything in life you can make it fun and it actually made me inspired i was like i don't know if he can if he can do is it cake like surely we can make like an influencer video for for running yeah that's so true um so a serious recommendation um that i had never heard of is the show minx on hbo um this is actually really amazing it's about um a 1970s uh magazine that is going to be focused on the female gaze so in other words like a mix of like very serious topics and um, some pornography perhaps. And we we're just scrolling through HBO the other day and Megan saw the word pornography and she's like, stop, stop right there. It's like, I want to watch that. Yes. I, well, I mean, it's not pornography, but it, it's, it's not, but you were curious. It's it's kind of like, I mean, there's some, some tender, some soft porn in there and it's great. Yeah. But the narrative, I mean, not just that, the narrative story is fantastic. It's a really good show. I also think it set the FKT for penises. Oh, for sure. There's Easily. a lot of penises. Yeah. There's, it's got every Strava crown for big old wings. <laughs> Is that okay to say? No, totally you fine. At, you looked at me like you hated me. <laughs> um, and then also like doing fun videos slash creative projects. Uh, 
And on that topic, we are influencers now. Kind uh, of. I, we totally are. We did a video project this weekend and it kind of involved doing a running scavenger hunt yeah. around Boulder. Uh, you were running. I was like power strolling, trying. You were pushing me in carts at times. It, yeah. it, it got very fun. But I realized we didn't have a tripod. Like I imagine like all, influ- we're not influencers. I imagine like everyone has a tripod who's shooting these types of videos. So we were placing our phone in like trees and on bike racks and in all kinds of different places to yeah. film our shots, like total noobs. So that's coming soon. Also gives me a lot of respect for actual influencers. Oh God, so much work. It's so much work. They totally deserve how much they get oh, paid. Oh, for sure. If you can create that much interesting content for that long, yeah, you deserve to be making like, I hear all those, those little kids on TikTok are making like $10 million. Oh, this because they're geniuses probably. Yeah, they're probably, and it's it's super remarkable. Um, and so speaking of influencing, let's talk about Athletic Greens. We had a ton of people report back. Uh, we've seen a lot of really cool information on that um, of HRV rising and overall people just feeling good. Um, so I wanted to briefly mention how I like to do it. So I've decided that I don't love it in the morning right after I wake up, which is what it says to do on the cover and maybe other people should do. Um, because like, it's kind of low calorie. So it doesn't, it's not what I want before runs. Like I want everything I consume to have calories at that point. I want it to be sports drink, not like a green, like a, a multivitamin essentially. So what I've liked to do is post run with protein powder and a few vitamin D drops. That is my jam. It gets everything I need right after I run and when I want fluids. So, um, Try that if you haven't. It's like the shit and I kind of love it. And you occasionally mix it with Reese's Fox cereal for yeah. all the goodness. <laughs> I do. That's Does that going... counteract the benefits of the greens? Like if you put Reese's Puff cereal in Athletic Greens, is there like a counter effect there? No, no, because Reese's Puff cereal is like EPO. It's <laughs> yeah. just magical performance enhancement. Um, so Athletic Greens, we like it as a multivitamin. Um, go to athleticgreens.com slash swap, S-W-A-P. There, if you unlock the offer code, you can get the vitamin D dropper and everything else. Um, we are really into it, kind of recommended it wholeheartedly now um, as a multivitamin, essentially. Don't think of it as a, gr- like it happens to be green, uh, but it's mainly just for the vitamin. It's essentially your um, nutrition security blanket. Um, and I've been feeling super great. I like the fact that it's green. I yeah. feel like we should do a study where there's athletic greens that's like clear and athletic greens that's green. And I feel like the one that's green, people would internalize the effect more because yeah. you're like, I'm drinking something powerful. Huzzah. Interesting. Self, I totally feel it. Self-talk for nutrition shots. Yes, I feel it. Well, that's actually a perfect segue to the next topic, which is on the overarching effect of the placebo um, and how this plays a role in athletic performance, in athletic growth. So you remember from a few weeks, um, we talked about self-talk where once you train someone to teach uh, themselves to talk kindly um, to their bodies, they'll have a few percent performance increase in most studies. Uh, this is a more uh, nefarious way to get it. That's the- a good way to describe it. Yes. They use some good deception in the yes. study. <laughs> um, so this one is called the effects of an injected placebo on endurance running performance. And how they did this. So they, they recruited 15 endurance trained men with 39 minute 10K average. So men who were training and fast. Um, And what I think is actually interesting is that they had more participants recruited and actually a few dropped out because they were concerned about the impacts of the drug, which at this, what they weren't aware was the placebo. And that shows that the deception effect is working. Yes. Because I think if you didn't have people dropping out, all these people were willing to take some drug, you might not be selling it well enough. Yeah. It's like kind of like I always tell people that um, if something causes that much of a performance improvement, it's not legal. Um, and this, this kind of gets to that idea. So the way they did this is they did a 3k race before and after a seven day intervention period. Um, during the placebo phase, participants self-administered subcutaneous, uh, in saline injections daily, but they believe that these saline injections were something called oxy RBX. 
um, which was meant to mimic the effects of EPO. So these people thought they were taking something that was essentially a blood builder. Um, I don't know if they told them if it was illegal or not. I assume they kind of assumed, uh, but maybe not. Maybe they assumed it was like a legal form, kind of like um, we always talk about, you know, sauna might be a legal form of EPO. Maybe they're like, oh, well, this is something that's not banned. Listeners out there may be wondering, like, who the heck designed the study? Like, this yeah. seems nefarious. Like, imagine signing up for a study and then realizing the entire drug is a scam. Yeah. Uh, actually, deception is used a lot in exercise physiology studies and also in <laughs> psychology studies, too. So this is not uncommon to have deception. And as long as there's no, I mean, there's no risk to the participant at this point because they're taking a placebo. So it's yeah. totally fine. But deception is used a lot less in like medicine and like cancer related studies, obviously. Yeah. But in this form, it was considered to be okay. Yeah. And so as you can probably guess, the results were pretty striking. There's a 1.2% improvement from this placebo. Um, what, what's interesting is that the placebo effect more generally is thought to be between one and 2% often um, and how much it can improve performance. Um, so this overlaps with that, that just by thinking that they were taking a drug that mimicked EPO, they got faster. Um, it makes me wonder how much of every, all of everything is placebo effect, right? Like I think to some extent it's involved in everything, but I think it's only involved like one to 2%. Yeah. So I think whenever you look at a study, the effect size has to kind of be beyond the effect of the yeah. placebo, which is really important. So that's one place that you have to consider. Oh, is that a statistical way that you think about problems sometimes with how you set up equations and things? No, I mean, it really depends on the study and it depends on like the sample size. And there's like so yeah. many different things that go into it. But certainly if you have a small effect size on a study, you have to think about, oh, is this placebo? Yeah. And a lot of that is related to study design. Like do the participants know what they're taking? Like, is there some sort of like placebo effect they could receive from it. Um, but what I think is interesting, though, is, is when you compare this to self-talk. So self-talk has a very similar like effect size. Yeah. And so I think like, you know, the impacts of taking a drug like this seem to be similar to, you know, having this positive self-talk. But what I think is interesting about the placebo is they're not often additive. So yeah. I feel like if we added positive self-talk to the group that was also taking this placebo drug, yeah. it wouldn't add up to be like 1.2 plus 1.2. It would probably just stay at 1.2. Well, that's really interesting. But then it probably compounds over time. So that 1.2% improvement, even if it comes from a fake place at the start, you adapt to that, and then you can still improve 1.2% over that with other ways of harnessing the placebo effect. Um, so self-talk being the obvious one, don't inject yourself with saline. Um, unless maybe that works for hydration. Probably not legal based on water code, though. Um, the other thing, though, I was thinking about as you were talking is like a narrative self-talk. So we talked about self-talk as it relates to specific sessions, right? Mm -hmm. um, what about as you think about what you're doing. So um, maybe one of the reasons coaching works and we've seen athletes improve so much is because they think that when they join SWAT, they're going to improve, right? And like how much of that can be, I don't know. Does that make sense? Is that? Well, I think actually this makes me think of the idea that there's like mantras, which are often described as like self-talk, which yeah. in a lot, a lot of studies, it's like, keep going, keep pushing. Yeah. And I love, I love the idea. And I haven't seen this like in any research to think it's like a key term, but narrative self-talk of believing in the larger process yes. and like constructing that narrative over time. I love that. Well, especially, think I think about, I might, yeah. my bet is that that's stronger than the, like with the mantra self-talk because yeah. it has this like this arc and there's a sense of like belief that's powering it through. Yeah. Think about it in the context of weekly miles, let's say. Yeah. I bet 120 miles a week or whatever. One of the greatest powers of it is that you're, no, you're doing 120 miles a week and no one is outworking you. Right. Whereas, I mean, we've seen athletes that learn to step off that game have, incredible successes on 40 or 50 miles a week, including like podiums at UTMB, which doesn't make physiological sense if you're thinking 
um, like the broader cohort of athletes that have ever done that. I'm actually curious the difference between athletes who train in kilometers per week versus miles per week oh. to know if there's any psychological benefit because kilometers per week are obviously higher than miles per week. Yeah. So like, is there any psychological benefit to training in kilometers per week? Because it's like fun. It's going to be higher. Well, easier to get to triple digits. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah I mean, it, it gets back to, um, the, one of the reasons that they've always explained in the past back before America had its amazing marathon resurgence is that American athletes glom on male athletes glom on to five minutes per mile as the focus time and athletes that don't live in an imperial system gather glom on to three minutes per kilometer which is faster and so they run slightly faster in the marathon maybe that is like a narrative way of thinking about how this all of this works so essentially what we're saying is if you have to convince yourself in training, whether it's in a single session or across the broad array of time, you're probably going to be undercutting your per performance by like a one to 2% potential improvement. So ask questions, be inquisitive, you know, even express doubts, but make sure that doesn't get in the way of like truly believing, even if you kind of have to convince yourself, even if you kind of have to fake yourself, uh, do the metaphorical version of injecting yourself with some fake EPO. I like the term fake yourself. Yeah. I don't know if I've heard that before, but I, I really like that fake yourself. But also too, if you sign up as part of an exercise physiology study, understand there's the potential for deception yeah. or even any study like psychology, especially. So I think sometimes like study participants always go in assuming the study is straightforward and it may not be. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you're undermining some, someone's study out there right now. That's like, no, I was going to test uh 4% shoes, but like fake ones. That was, I actually had that idea for a study. That's funny that you said that. That would be really cool to see. Yeah. Cause I think that's another point where, you know, we would see the placebo effect add up. Okay. So let's end the podcast talking about something that I think is really relevant right now. Mm -hmm. Always a good reminder, which is heat. Spicy heat. Spicy heat. Especially, actually, not yeah. even spicy heat. No, it can be mild heat. It can be like uh, very uh, mayo style heat. It does not take hot sauce heat to make it feel very difficult, especially in spring after you've had a long winter of you know being used to more uh, chilly temperatures. We actually saw this last weekend here in Boulder. It was, I mean, it was seventies, which for this yeah. time of year is hot. Certainly the first like hotter day that we've had in a while. And it was similar across the U.S. and a lot of different areas. Athletes experiencing heat on their runs for their first time in the winter. Yeah. And that first day of doing a long run in the heat can be jarring to can the body. So. Fucking hard. I remember um, in California having a similar day, which wasn't that hot. And you dropped me as my heart rate shot up to like 170 on something where it should be 130, 140. And being like, oh my God, what an interesting physiological mechanism there that the, essentially the body goes into panic mode. And um, there's some really cool things involved. But I think as we're starting to approach spring and summer, having reminders about how to fit this into your training and what you can do to expedite the process and improve performance is really key. So big pr principle at the start is if you are someone out there that thinks you are not good in heat, this is a place where you can excel. Um, there is a genetic component, but a lot of it is behavior and actions. And so we're going to talk about some of that today. And I think it's important too, not to shy away from the heat. Yeah. I have a lot of athletes who like really prefer running in like the, the very early mornings. So they're not in the heat of the day, but actually, you know, running in the heat of the day does have these positive adaptations that not only allow you to become better in heat, may also improve performance as well and improve other physiological parameters, um, including blood volume and hemoglobin mass. And yeah. so it's interesting to dive into these and think about like general improvements too. Yes. So we're going to get into a fascinating study that just came out last week um, that validates some all other emerging science that is on how heat impacts red blood cells. So as a background, um, you know, just a brief 
primer on this. Um, after you're exposed to heat, there's an immediate blood volume response. So blood volume being the liquid content in your blood, essentially the water in your blood, as that expands in order to increase the cooling mechanism that you have on the surface of your skin. Um, but the fascinating place the science has gone is finding that that change will reduce your hematocrit, which is the percentage of red blood cells in your bloodstream. And your that causes your body to release natural EPO, as we talked about, which then increases the amount of red blood cells your body creates. So over the course of three to six weeks, your hemoglobin mass, as Megan mentioned, can go up. So heat isn't just getting good at heat. Heat could be improving performance in every single setting, like some of those people getting real EPO injections. And we've talked about heat before as a version of like, quote unquote, poor man's altitude. Yeah. And the idea that some of these changes, not all of these changes actually parallel what you see at altitude and may prepare you better for like high altitude climates. Interestingly, when you first go to altitude, it's actually the inverse in the first four to seven days. So blood plasma volume tends to drop, yes. um, but has a similar response over the three to six week period where hemoglobin mass does increase. And so that's where you're seeing the parallels is in the hemoglobin mass over time. Yes. Just different ways to get there based off of the different physiological stress and stimuli. Yeah. And it's why athletes can come from a place like Florida and perform well at altitude. Um, you know, we have a lot of experiences like that in our life before we moved to Colorado. Okay. So this study was called heat suit training increases hemoglobin mass in elite cross-country skiers. Uh, the way this works is that um, there were 12 skiers in the intervention group and 12 skiers in the control group. They did similar training. The difference is that the skiers in the intervention group did five by 50 minute doubles in the PM where they wore heat suits. Um, so these were low intensity uh, exercise periods and they were wearing quite a lot of clothes. Can I, I'm actually going to read this straight from the method section as to what they were wearing for heat suits because I was intrigued by this. Don't do this at home. Definitely. Sounds, this does it. not sound fun. So <laughs> during heat sessions, the participants were wearing clothing that limited heat loss, consisting of a wool layer on both the upper and lower body, mm -hmm. a wool hat, mm -hmm. a nylon rain jacket, mm -hmm. a down jacket, uh. and nylon pants <laughs> with poor evaporative capacity and were instructed to drink 500 milliliters of water freely distributed across the 50 minutes of heat exercise. That sounds terrible. Honestly, that sounds terrible for skiing on like a 45 degree Colorado day. That sounds way too hot. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, in Friends when Joey wore all the clothes in his <laughs> closet. That's essentially what they had these athletes doing. Um, so the really interesting findings here is that after the intervention, um, they found 30 grams greater hemoglobin mass, so significant amount more hemoglobin, and 157 millimeters more red blood cells in the intervention group. And what I think is interesting about that is that hemoglobin mass tends to be related to changes in VO2 max. Yeah. So hemoglobin mass tends to increase and there's a relationship there, a direct relationship there with, with VO2 max. But what I found interesting about the study was they actually didn't see any per changes in performance metrics over time. Yeah. And I was curious about this. Like, I think to me, this didn't make intuitive sense. Uh, what was your thought on this? I'm still a little bit uncertain. So they did the measurements in temperate conditions, but if we're seeing these blood increases, if we're seeing, I mean, red, red blood cells are used to transport oxygen to working muscles. You would expect to see a change based on this. And I think it probably shows that there are some mechanistic factors there we are not 100% certain about. My um, Yeah, my question, I guess, is is there, so as hemoglobin mass increases and in this specific way related to heat, is there some compensatory mechanism elsewhere in the body that yeah. changes that may not allow that hemoglobin mass increase to like fully um, reproduced exercise? Yeah. So, you know, as it relates to performance in temperate conditions, I think 
Usually the studies show some performance increase, though it's a lot more variable. Um, as it relates to hot performance, obviously you're gonna see massive changes. And so, you know, what I think is relevant right now is as we think about, okay, we wanna perform well in the heat this summer, whether you're doing something like Western states or just living your life in a hot environment, how do you harness some of these adaptations without like going full Joey in your basement for 50 <laughs> minutes on the bike in the PM, um, which is an option, but not one we recommend. I think the the most obvious way to do this is to jumpstart the process with the sauna. And now is a perfect time to do it. It does not take much. I mean, there was one study that found four sauna sessions uh, after exercise, increased blood volume. So the blood plasma volume that we're talking about, the initial spur, spur of these adaptations by 17.8%. So like we like athletes to do three to four days in the dry sauna if they can for 20 to 30 minutes. Don't stay in too long. Uh, make sure your heart rate doesn't go too high. And then just maintain that adaptation after. It can be one time a week. It can be two times a week. It can be zero if you're running outside in the heat sometimes. Do that and you're going to be as prepared for heat as these skiers were in the study. You don't need to overdo it, which is the biggest problem I see sometimes before people go to heat. They just fry the fuck out of their bodies like they're little pieces of bacon. I was actually thinking about that heading into Western states. Like yeah. sometimes you look on Strava and look at the heat training protocols of athletes preparing for Western states. And it's like, it just seems like a stress cooker, like a situation for cortisol. And so it's really important, especially if you're a female athlete, especially if you have low yeah. ferritin levels, especially if you might be stress limited or live at altitude to think about the fact that this is another stress. Yeah. And it's really important and also not to pile it on. The other thing I was thinking about too is we love the sauna protocol, yeah. but not all my athletes can have access to the sauna. So mm -hmm. hot baths are another great proxy for this. If you can't do hot bath or hot sauna, even just taking this protocol, so the four days in a row and then two times per week thereafter of training outside in the heat when oh, it's yeah, hot, yeah. like I think that also has really similar uh, stimuli as well. Yeah, and doubles are your friend because once it gets actually hot and you're starting to get the 80 degrees and sunny days, like you basically have a sauna outside. And so doing that periodically if you don't have access is great. And so even if you do all of the sauna, you're still not going to be ready to do Western states. Like it's there, there is a part of these adaptations that need to be active. Like, so I would say if you have a big event coming up, that's going to be in the heat, or you really want to perform well in the heat, seek out at least two times where you go out there in the absolute thick of the heat and, you know, push yourself a little bit. It doesn't have to be that long. It can be like an hour or two. Um, but that is what we've seen is kind of essential to get athletes to that next level of having all these blood adaptations translate to performance adaptations. And maybe that's the problem for the skiers is they were just doing low intensity stuff. So they got all the adaptations they needed, but then didn't transfer it as much to like really hard sessions. I feel like we need to have waivers associated with this too. Yeah. Like drink, hydrate, make sure to like, you know, don't don't take this to the extremes keep a good eye on your body like heat stroke is very real and dangerous yeah um so also just make sure to keep good eye on your body i was too. just thinking nelly must be so disappointed in this study you're like <laughs> it's getting hot in here so put on all your clothes no that is not what N professor nelly instructed us all of those years ago they really should have gone with that for the article title yeah i actually hate uh like wearing a lot of clothes. Oh my gosh. I hate that. I don't too. have any athletes. That would, I, I actually, I think for me, I wouldn't have any performance changes because I would be so annoyed yeah. that I wouldn't be able to exercise well with all that clothing on. Yeah. A lot of people do that to prepare for heat. And I'm just like, no sport. That gets back to the burnout discussion and making this fun. It's like, I doubt that that's going to make things sustainable over time. Uh, to some people that might be super fun. What? Getting hard on heat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Getting wet on heat hard on heat either one okay do you want to move on to listener quarter yeah i love this listener quarter. uh should you read it or i i can read it this one Great. is on dnfs and this is a really beautiful email um the the listener wrote i've dnf'd a lot in the past five years so for a year or so i walled in the fact that i was a black pregnant graduate school dropout that threw away a promising future 
That was so hard coming from a type A person that always did the safe thing, always made good grades, etc. I really understood when Megan said that after not going to residency, she wondered how things were for her former classmates that did. I've been wallowing in self-pity and wondering if I've made all the right choices in my life, especially as I approach the last year of my 20s. But that podcast really changed the way I've been thinking about everything. Leaving behind my career and school these last few years have given me the opportunity to watch my babies grow up. I haven't missed anything. Mm. The morning that my daughter rolled over for the first time was the day I was supposed to be gone for graduation. I could have missed a lot. Even though I don't lift competitively anymore, I've entered into this amazing sport of trail and ultra running. I ran my first 100 recently. That was life-changing. I've met so many amazing friends and my community has grown so much. I'm not depressed anymore. I'm happier than I ever remember being. Thank you for the reminder that DNFs in life aren't bad. It doesn't matter the reason and how they can lead us into completely new and awesome paths. The podcast rocks and it's my favorite to listen to. I am sitting here. It is warm in here. Yeah. We are doing heat training and I have goosebumps. It's that was the, beautiful. What a cool also person. an expert from a much longer email that included more details. And we, of course, uh, de-identify things, but so beautiful. Yeah, so amazing. So inspiring. And just a reminder that, God, these fucking narratives are so complicated, right? Like no matter what they are and the more we can just sprinkle all that shit with some belief and some understanding that like the person that deserves love and compassion the most is ourselves. Uh, the better everything will be. Sprinkle love, sprinkle sprinkles, sprinkle <laughs> all the goodness. <laughs> yeah, and sprinkle umami. Oh, umami. And uh, primarily I use the, I use umami as the definition of salty. It's definitely not, but Reese's oh, Puffs are umami. The good thing about umami is that like, while it has a specific definition- It's, it's vague. It's kind of like a je ne sais quoi yeah, situation. Exactly, yeah, So I can use it for almost everything. It's like, like I don't know, my scent has some umami. Oh, I'm definitely smelling some umami over here on me. <laughs> well, we combine to create like the most awesome uh, mix of flavors. So thank you all so much for listening. We love you deeply. Um, rate, review, and subscribe, especially reviewing and subscribing, please, if you've never listened to it, with five stars if you can. Um, and have the best fucking day. You're the freaking most amazing. Thank you so much, everyone. Woohoo! Woohoo! Bye.